The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. I cannot imagine doing anything more awesome than what we're doing here at Life Journey Church. Um, the joy and the freedom that we experience here at Life Journey Church of, of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ unadulterated as it comes off the pages of the New Testament, man, it's been awesome. I mean, I really could not imagine doing anything else. And I, I love you. You guys have shown your love towards us, uh, towards our leaders here. And it's just been an awesome deal. But I want to make sure that as we move forward, as we're prayerfully preaching the, the truth of the good news of Jesus, that God no longer holds our sins against us for those who believe, that sin is no longer imputed into us for those who believe, as we're walking forward in an understanding of grace, I want to make sure that we turn around, Richard and I, that we turn around and we don't look back and, and see nobody's behind us actually following us. Because if you, if you think you're leading and, and you turn around nobody's behind you, you're just out for a walk. But we want to make sure that, that, you, that, there's, that you see what we're seeing, that you see what Scripture is teaching. Okay, So we want to make sure, I want to be absolutely sensitive that, that knowing that the, we come from a d- different religious backgrounds, and with those we have different religious baggage. We, we've been taught over and over that there's not much difference between the old covenant that was experienced in the Old Testament and this new covenant that is now available for those who believe. There's been such a mixture of these things that, it's, that, that there's a lot of baggage and a lack of understanding on our part. And we want to commit to you to be intentional and as patient as needed with anyone who is struggling to see what God has done in you once you started trusting Jesus. We understand that very few churches teach about the new covenant, about the new creation, about the completed work of Jesus, about our union with Christ, and on and on. So we understand that some of what we're saying could could sound a little strange, a little like, huh? But let me ask you, doesn't it sound strangely awesome? That God no longer holds our sins against us for those who believe. That God no longer imputes sin into us when we sin, but yet rather his righteousness. The text we're going to take a look at is going to challenge us this morning. It challenged me deeply as I prepared for it over these last two weeks. But if we can see what's happening here in Romans, in Mark chapter 6, uh, if we can see what's happening, I think we can see one of the clearest pictures of the new covenant right in front of us. Okay? Are you ready? No. Are you ready? All right. Let's go to Mark chapter 6. Let's start here. We've got to remember a little bit of context. What happened is last week, Richard preached about the feeding of the 5,000. There were 5,000 men that were fed by Jesus. You add the wives, you add the 2.5 kids and the dogs and cats. I mean, there might be 20,000 people, perhaps. I don't know. Did you give a number last week of how many? Okay. So a lot of thousands of 20,000 people or so that were fed by Jesus. And immediately, the Bible says in verse 45, the very next verse after this, immediately he, he being Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where, and while he dismissed the crowd. So he forced them. Why did Jesus make his disciples get into the boat and cross the other side? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm made to do something, it's probably because I didn't want to do it in the first place. Does that make sense, right? 
Okay, it wasn't something, maybe it wasn't something I was intending to do. Maybe it's not that I didn't want to do it, but it wasn't something I was intending to do, and so I'm forced to do it. Okay, so we can get from this that the disciples were not thinking of, hey, let's get out of here, let's go to another place. There are thousands of people who are sitting here before Jesus, 20-some thousand. That's a lot of people in Galilee. It constitutes like almost three or four villages together that have come to sit before Jesus. And I believe we can, we can extrapolate that they are ready to crown Jesus as their physical king. Their physical king to overthrow the oppressive Roman rule. We read about that in other places in the New Testament, that they were ready. They were ready to bring Jesus in to be their, their king, the king of the Jews, right there so that Rome would be kicked to the curb and they would be free. But listen to me, church. This isn't Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan was so much bigger. He sought not just to separate the Jews from the wicked Romans, but listen, Jesus sought to separate people from the wickedness of their sin and the condemnation that comes from the law. And so Jesus makes his disciples get in the boat. He says, don't even think about it. Get in the boat. You're going to the other side, and I'm going to dismiss this crowd. And Jesus, after he dismisses the crowd, verse 46, he, takes, he, he had taken leave of them. That just means he, he made them leave. And he went up to the mountain to pray. So just envision this with me, that the sea is is here, and there's this mountain or this hillside where Jesus climbs to pray. Now, in the book of Mark, ironically enough, there are only three times recorded that Jesus went away to pray. Now, certainly there's more times he went away to pray, but, but Mark only records three times. The first time was at chapter 1, where he's at the beginning of his ministry where he's about to embark on this whole ministry of some three and a half years. He's about to enlist followers. He's about to bring forth the kingdom of God to earth. And he goes away for a season and prays because some big things were about to happen. The ministry of Jesus was about to start. The third time that Jesus goes away to pray, we'll get to it in Mark chapter 14, but this is the night of his arrest. And we probably, those of you who are familiar with church, you probably remember this. He goes to the, to the garden and he prays with his disciples. And I think Luke describes that there's so much pressure and so much agony that this, this medical condition called hemodidrosis, blood starts breaking through the capillaries and the sweat glands and blood literally comes out from his skin because there's so much pressure, because of the pending wrath of God. That's going to be poured out on him because he becomes sin the very next day. So he goes away to pray because the very next day something big happens. So right here we have the only other time in the book of Mark where Mark records Jesus goes away to pray. I don't know about you, but if I look at the first time he goes away to pray, something huge happens, the beginning of his ministry. And the third time he goes away to pray, something huge happens. He bears the sin of people and the wrath of God is poured out on him. I'm thinking, okay, something huge is about to happen right here because Jesus is going away to pray. You see that? Something, something's huge. My, my little antenna of, okay, what's happening? You know, it's like ding, ding, ding. Something's going to happen here that's huge. If this is the only third, if there's only three times that Jesus is even recorded in Mark to go away to pray. So right here in the middle of this story, Jesus goes away to pray. It tells me something big is going to happen. Something huge happened the other two times. And man, something cosmically huge is going to happen right here. And I would just like to stop and maybe just pray that God would reveal this to us. Is that okay with you? Father, I just pray right here in the middle of this text as Jesus has gone away to pray. I pray, Father, that we would see what's about to happen. I'm convinced, Father, that 
This new covenant is beyond our imagination. This new thing that you did because of Jesus, it's beyond, it's beyond reason. It's beyond our ability to, to, to dream up. It's amazing. And I just pray, Father, that you would reveal it to us this morning. I pray, Father, that you would strip away from us everything that we could possibly believe other than what is going to come off the pages of Scripture this morning. God, remove from us our legalistic baggage. Remove from us, Father, the mixture of law and grace, the mixture of the old covenant and the new covenant. We know that you hate mixture of law and grace. So, Father, teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the disciples are out on the boat, and Jesus has gone up to the mountain to pray. Verse 47 says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus, he was alone on the land. And that's important. We'll come back to that. The boat on the sea, Jesus on the land. That's important. We'll come back to that. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. As we've talked about before, I think Richard preached the message about the the great wind, and Jesus calms the wind. That was in Mark uh, chapter 4. Four, five, something, I forget. But we've seen this before where the Sea of Galilee is notorious for storms coming up unexpectedly and in a fury. This apparently happens here. They get in the boat, the sea is calm, things are good, and maybe after an hour or so of them rowing, this fierce storm comes against them. And Jesus sees them, and the idea that I see in my mind is it's this, it's the evening has come, so it's like maybe prior, prior to dusk. They've been rowing for a while, and prior to dusk, they, Jesus sees the men out there fighting against the waves. They're just trying to do what Jesus told them to do. They're just trying to follow a command. They're just trying to follow his, his rules to just go to the other side. And now they can't get anywhere. This wind has come against them. They're in a boat by themselves just trying to obey Jesus. And now they're hanging on for dear life just trying not to die. But when does Jesus actually come to them to help? The scripture says, and at the fourth watch of the night... He came to them. The fourth watch of the night. He doesn't come to them until the fourth watch. Well, what's the fourth watch? I only have one. Uh, what's the fourth watch? Well, the Roman calendar or the Roman you know, timekeeping, they would have the first, night, the first hour, the second hour, third hour, or first watch, second hour, watch, third watch, fourth watch. The fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Okay, they, they broke up their shifts, kind of like nurses do. They broke up their shifts, and they had different shifts of who would watch you know, the city to guard the city. And so during the third watch was 3 to 6 a.m. So I don't think it's out of question to assume, to speculate that Jesus puts the disciples in the boat in the late afternoon, early evening, the day before. You know, so let's just assume 5 p.m.-ish or something after everybody's eaten. And he says, no, get in the boat and go. And Jesus goes up, so around 5-ish or so, and Jesus goes up to the mountain. And when evening came, okay, you think about evening, you know, 8 o'clock, 7, 8 o'clock at night. Jesus sees them, and, and they're being tormented by the wind. But, but Jesus doesn't come immediately. He waits to the fourth watch between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So if they, if they go out at around 5 o'clock, it could be a whole 12 hours later before Jesus even comes to their aid. Now, under a normal circumstance, it only takes about four or five hours to row across the Sea of Galilee. But this has been 12 or so long hours. There's your or so. 12 or so long hours for, for, for them to try to just obey. They're trying to just obey. They're trying to just do what's right to get across the sea. And they are still within eye distance of the shore. In the book of John, he says that they're just two or three miles away from the shore. And so 
Jesus wraps up his prayer session with the Father. Now, logically, we would assume, how does he come to them? And I know you might have read ahead or you might have heard this, this account before. Logically, you would think that if somebody comes to a boat that's in the water from the shore, they would get in a boat and come to it. But think about this. If it's been tw- at least 12 guys are in this boat, in this ship, rowing for their lives, and they've only gotten a couple of miles in 12 hours, just think how, how long it would take one man in one boat to try to come and rescue. It, it would be impossible. So Jesus doesn't get in a boat and come by oar to him. This is pretty cool. He does something a lot more practical. He said the wind is too great against the ship. He does something a lot cooler. The Bible says very clearly, clearly, he says, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, I know what you might think. All right, come on. Really? I mean, walking on the sea? Now look, while I am too enlightened, or I'm too educated, I'm too, uh, too, too advanced to really believe that something like this could happen. Well, I don't want to get into like nuts and bolts in this, but grammatically, you can't get around it. Okay, remember how I said, remember back in verse 47 where the boat was on the water and Jesus was on the land? Remember how I said this is important, we're going to come back to that? The same exact prepositional phrase is what Mark uses in the Greek to describe Jesus on the sea. So if you want to throw out the, grammatically that Jesus is actually on top of the sea, then you have to throw out the fact that Jesus is on the land because it's the exact same preposition. And no critic is able to discredit the historicity of Jesus Christ walking on the land. They can't do it. And so grammatically, you can't throw it out. So, so critics and skeptics have to create all kinds of ideas. And so these crazy postulated ideas are that, okay, well, there was this sandbar that was just underneath the surface of the water that extended out for three or four miles, and Jesus walks along the sandbar. So it makes it look, okay, maybe that's reasonable to think that this isn't some miracle, but that Jesus is walking on the sandbar. But remember, many of these disciples are expert fishermen of what sea? The Sea of Galilee. So wouldn't they realize, hey, nice try, Jesus, but you're walking on the sandbar? No, they didn't say that because they realized that that's not possible. Another speculation is that Jesus, right, he's in the family of a carpenter, so maybe while everybody was getting their fill of fish, Jesus goes to the lows, he gets a bunch of lumber, and underneath the surface of the water, this is a, a genuine speculation by critics, underneath the surface of the water, he builds this underwater dock, deck, that he walks out on appearing as if he is on water. Skeptics, critics are unwilling to admit that Jesus actually walked on water. Because if Jesus walked on water, then he walks where only God can walk. And that's exactly what we see happening. The authority of Jesus as God in the flesh is on full display. Before the creation of the world, go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Before the creation of the world, God hovered over the face of the water right before he created all things. And now Jesus, the God in flesh, is walking on the water just before he creates something brand new, a new creation. This is awesome. And so right now we see God walking on the water. So Jesus, he sees their distress, he sees their pain, trying to just obey, trying to just do what Jesus told him to do, and he spends an entire night praying, communing with the Father. And remember, the other two times, something huge happened when he prayed in Mark, and Jesus leaves the mountain, and he goes from walking on the land, which is natural and normal and simple, anybody can do that, to walking on the water, something that only the divine, only supernatural can do. And then Mark says this, 
If you're ready to get your mind blown, say, okay. Okay, like this is mind-blowing stuff right here, at least for me. Go ahead to the next screen. Oh, it's right there. He meant to pass them by. What? What? Literally, he willed, literally, he desired to pass them by. What in the world? Is this Jesus who, who we see so compassionate with so many others? Is he now become a jerk to his own disciples? The King James says that he would have passed them by and then suggests that because they cry out to help, he turns. At least that sounds compassionate, but that's not what the original language says. Literally, he willed, he desired to pass them by. Why? Why would he do that? Oh, saints, listen. I pray that we can see this, that we can see this. If we see this truth, our understanding of the new covenant, our understanding of the plan and the power of God will be revolutionized. To us Gentiles, this makes very little sense as to why the Christ, the one who had come to help people, is desiring to walk past the people who are in need. But I want to make sure that we're on the same page. Jesus is in the middle of his ministry. He has come with full authority on a mission to redeem people from their sin. But why in the world is he wanting to walk past his disciples in need? And I was, I was praying through this. I was like, no, what am I going to do with that? I began to think through the Old Testament of different times where God walks past people. There are three times, and I'm going to try to summarize them very, very quickly. The first time was with Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, I see, I see heads shaking because you're starting to see what's happening here. In, in Exodus 33, Moses, he is, he is fighting, he is, he is beyond stressed. He's trying to do something that only you know, nobody can do, that is lead a rebellious and stiff-necked people through a wilderness. And Moses, at the end of his rope, says, God, I just want to see you for who you really are. And God says, you can't and live because the sin of Moses was still imputed into him. And so God says, but hey, I've got a place in a rock where you can hide, and I'll put my hand over your face, and when I pass you by, I'll let my hand go so that at least you can see the backside where I was. And that happened, and Moses' face shone. His skin was, was blistered from seeing this. And for a, se- for a season, Moses was encouraged because, oh, he, he is glorious. He is righteous. But Moses couldn't see his face. Moses couldn't reach out and touch him, or else Moses would be dead. The second time that this happens is with a man named Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah similarly is in this crisis of belief. He is running for his life, wondering, how in the world am I, on my own, going to bring Israel back to God? And he cries out over and over, God, how am I going to do this? And God tells him, go out from there hiding to the edge of the rock, from the edge of the, of the, of the cave, and I'm going to pass you by. There's wind, there's fire, there's earthquake, but God wasn't in those things. A simple little voice came into Elijah and says, listen, Elijah. You have no idea how big, how powerful I am. You are not alone. I have thousands who, have still, who are still faithful to me. And the glory of God passed by Elijah. But he couldn't touch it. He couldn't grasp it. He couldn't internalize it. It was distant. It was far from him. 
The third time that we read about God passing by is way before these two events happen. And it's in the book of Job. Job chapter 9. And Job, again, a man in extreme crisis of belief, thinking, what in the world am I going to do? How can I get back to where I once was? And he says this of God. He says, God alone stretched out the heavens, and God alone walked on the waves of the seas. Huh. Sounds a lot like Mark chapter 6. He says, behold, he passes me by, and I can't see him. He moves on, but I dare not try to perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. He leaves quickly. He's distant is the idea. Who can turn him back? Who can call him to return? Like with Moses and Elijah, Job paints this picture of this distant God whose holiness and righteousness and majesty is matchless. A picture of someone who is holy God and God holy whose holiness is so far beyond theirs to the point where they cannot understand him, they cannot see him, they cannot perceive him, they can't call him back. He is totally separated from their sinful condition. This is a God whose righteousness and perfection causes trembling in the eyes of those who even think about seeing him. Remember the man who just tried to correct the the ark because it was starting to fall? He touched the ark, he touched the presence of God, and he died. Because sin was still imputed into him, that, that, that um, uh, Jewish man, that Israelite man, I forget his name, somebody, yeah. Um, so, God, so this is a God whose very act of walking past Moses, past Elijah, past Job, reminds them that they are hopeless to match up to that level of glory. Do you see the picture of what's happening in the Old Covenant? It's distant. And this is exactly the response of the disciples. Read this starting in verse 49. But when they, the disciples, saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. That's just the idea. They thought it was, it was something supernatural, something in the spiritual realm. And they cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. They were scared, and they had every right to be scared. As good Jewish boys, Jewish men, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the power of God, and they were terrified. The image they see wasn't a familiar image. It was a supernatural image, a ghost that they call it. They were exhausted for hours upon hours of just trying to cross the sea, just trying to do what God told them to do. And they barely have made it out of port. They're working and working to accomplish Jesus' command to just cross the sea. But the harder they try, the more effort they give, it's more and more difficult. Like rats in a maze, they are paddling and paddling and getting nowhere. So Jesus, who just created enough food for thousands to eat, something only God can do, spent all night communing with the Father. And he is walking on the water, something only God does. And he desires to pass the disciples just like God does with Moses, what God did with Elijah, what God did with Job. But something incredibly different happens now. Something incredibly new, totally different happens this time. Something foreign happens. Something glorious happens. Something gracious happens. What happens? Well, let's read. But immediately he spoke to them and says, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he, Jesus, got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. And they, the disciples, were utterly astounded. 
This Jesus, who is the same God who walked past Moses and Moses' face glowed. The same Jesus, who is God, who walked past Elijah to reveal that thousands were still faithful. The same Jesus, who is the same God who Job describes as distant and foreign and untouchable and utterly holy. This same God, who is now clothed in the flesh in the Gospels, has made his dwelling amongst men, now speaks to his people. He says, there's no need for fear, for I am here. There's no need to be scared. I am at your side. There's no need to panic because I have come in. There's no need to be terrified for your Lord, your God is here. There's no need to continue to try to do something you can't. I have arrived. In fact, Mark uses the same Greek version of this exact phrase that God uses in Hebrew when he's talking to Moses in the burning bush. He says, Moses, if you remember Moses, who shall I say sent me? God says, tell them I am is the one who sent you. And we know the word Jehovah or Yapha or Yahweh. It depends on how you pronounce it. It's the same word. We, that's the word for I am. And Mark uses the exact same Greek phrase. In the Greek, ego eimi, which means... I am, and it's translated here, it is I. So Jesus, he's not just talk, walking like Jesus walks, walking on the water. Jesus is not just walking the same way that God did in the Old Testament, intending to walk past. Now Jesus is saying, I am, equating himself with the very name of God. In fact, when Jesus comes into the boat, the Gospel of John says that they were immediately at the place where they intended to go. Now, Mark doesn't discredit that. Mark just simply says in a couple more verses that they, when they, once they crossed. But why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus do this whole thing of going up to the mountain, telling his followers to go, knowing that they're not going to be able to do what he's commanded them to do, knowing he's going to have to come in on a uh, walking on water, knowing he is going to exercise his divine authority, just like in the Old Testament, of intending to walk past, but instead this time he turns and walks into them. Why does he do this? Well, verse 52 explains it. It says, for, remember I've said this before, if you see the word for that usually explains a the previous verses. It's a very helpful little tool there. For they did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. You see, Jesus sought to clearly demonstrate what he had come to do. His disciples didn't get after they didn't get it after feeding 5,000 men. So Jesus does this thing of entering into their scene, into their boat to melt their hard hearts. And I think it's starting to work. Because in just a few chapters, Peter is going to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I can, it's like Jesus says, finally, finally, you're starting to see it. You don't see it perfectly, but this was not revealed by man, but by my Father in heaven. They didn't grasp it fully, and they wouldn't grasp it fully until Jesus ascends and sends the Holy Spirit at Acts chapter 2 for the Spirit of God to indwell the followers. But this begins to open their eyes. And once they cross to the other side, the Bible says that the crowd, uh, when they came to the land at Gennesaret, they moored or they anchored there at the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And they ran, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever, wherever he came, in villages and cities and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him. They begged him. 
that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. For as many as touched it were made well. The compassion of Jesus continues. The sick are being healed. The lame are walking. The dead are living. Here's what I want you to see this morning as we begin to wrap this thing up. I hope that you see that God no longer, listen, I hope you see that God no longer walks past you as a distant, faraway God whose holiness is far beyond ours. And as a result, we would be burned up if we saw it. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus has not come to eliminate the holiness of God. Jesus has not come to lower the standard of God's holiness. Jesus has come to remove from you the wickedness that stands between you and the Father. Jesus has come to remove from you your sin, to remove from you your condemnation, so that when you believe in Him, you are given the very righteousness of Christ. Jesus desires, I, saints, I pray you see this, in this new covenant, to no longer walk past you, but now to walk in you and to walk through you. The new covenant is clearly seen in Jesus, who is God. He's walking on the water with the intention of passing by. But instead, he turns to them and comes into their boat. This is not the old covenant. This is not what was experienced by Moses, by Elijah, by Job. This is something new. This is something crazy. In the new covenant, Jesus has removed from us everything that stands between us and God. Hanging on the tree, Jesus became our sins so that we could become His righteousness. So Jesus did not come to lower the holiness of God. He came to make us as holy as God in the new creation. In this new covenant, the very, the very same God in all His holiness, in all His splendor, the very same God who was far from us in the old covenant is now united. Somebody say, amen. Somebody say, hallelujah. Somebody say, that's good news. That's the gospel. He's no longer distant. He's no longer foreign. There's nothing that we could do to separate us from him once we are in him because he has come into us for him, for he to live his life through us. Now, I know that Mark does not include the details about Peter asking Jesus to get out of the boat and walk on the water. And so I'm a little bit torn about whether or not I should even give comment on this. But growing up, I was always taught, as I'm sure you were always taught, that the whole point of this event was for us to just have the faith of Peter. And when we keep our eyes on Jesus, we'll walk on the water. And if we sin, then, then we, we start to sink and we keep our, take our eyes off Jesus. But Jesus is there and, and he'll rescue us again and again and again. That's kind of the takeaway. That's, that, that's the moralistic teaching growing up with this idea, this story. But if that's the whole point, don't you find it strange that neither Mark nor John include that element in the story? And that's not to discredit Peter walking on I think he I know he did, because Mark said he did. But I mean to think about it. If the whole point of this event is that God wants you out of your boat so that you can do all sorts of amazing things for God, as long as you don't waver in your faith, because, you know, if you do waver in your faith, you'll sink like a rock. You'll get that later on. Sink like a rock. Peter, okay, there you go. Um, but is this really the point? So maybe. The whole point of this event isn't that Jesus wants you out of your boat. Maybe the point isn't that Jesus wants you out trying to impress him, trying to show off who you are and what you can do. 
maybe, just maybe, the whole point of this event is to soften the hearts of the disciples and then soften our hearts to realize that in the new covenant, God comes into your boat to reveal his glory through you. In the new covenant, the very same God who was far from us is now united to us. Like Moses and Elijah, the disciples were trying to accomplish something they couldn't do on their own. They were trying to row across the sea, and the wind was more powerful than they were. They really wanted to fulfill the covenant, the command that God had told them. They really wanted to, but they couldn't. They really wanted to impress Jesus, but they couldn't. They really wanted to obey him perfectly, but the wind was too strong against them. Not until Jesus entered their boat were they able to fully obey. Here's where I'd like to dock the ship this morning. Okay? It is natural in us to desire to achieve peace, to achieve harmony, to achieve joy on our own. It comes naturally. It's a result of being in Adam. At birth, we are cursed and desire to achieve pleasure, preeminence, and domination over others. It was in our parents, it was in their parents, all the way back to Adam. In fact, most of us have been taught that the, 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 the temptation that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with was, hey, if you just eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then you will be like God. Most of us think that that, I've been taught that that was what the temptation was. If you just eat, then you'll be like God. I think that's foolishness. I think that's crazy. Because who wants you to be more like God than God does? Right? I mean, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, write it down and read it later. He says, to those whom God foreknew, he also predestined them to become, to be the righteousness of Christ. God wants you to be like him. But here's the crux of the fall. Here's the crux of the rebellion. In Adam and Eve, the temptation was, I want you, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you would be like God, knowing all things without God. You yourself would be like God without union with God. You don't need him, just eat of this. And that's where we find ourselves today. By eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve sought to be God, to be like God without God. And we're under this curse. Listen, the whole reason that God instituted the law was to show you cannot achieve righteousness apart from me. In fact, Jesus taught the law to people. When people were talking, and Jesus said, hey, you think your righteousness comes from keeping these Ten Commandments? You've heard it say, do not uh, commit murder. You've heard that, and you think you're good because you haven't killed anybody? Well, listen, let me make sure. If you're going to put your hope in that, let me make sure you understand that if you even hate somebody, you've committed murder. And I could just see the eyes of Jesus looking at him and say, how's your righteousness now? Or at other times he would say, oh, you've heard it. You really want to put your hope in the law? Well, you've heard it say, do not commit adultery. And you think that you're okay because you've not had a sexual relations with someone other than your wife. But I want to make sure if you put your hope in that, I want to make sure you understand what that really means. If you even lust in your heart, you have committed the crime. Oh, how's your righteousness now? At other times, people would come trying to justify, lawyers, experts in the law would come to justify themselves before Jesus. And they would say, hey, I love my neighbor as myself. I've done this. And and Jesus said, I want to make sure you understand what neighbor is. And he paints this picture of this Jew who falls in the hands of robbers and nobody comes to help him except for a despised Samaritan who is hated. And Jesus says, who, who has shown love here? And, he, and the, the, the Jews couldn't even say the name Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy. And Jesus says, okay, unless you are willing to love a dirty, despised Samaritan as much as you love yourself, you're not achieving the law. 
Other times, men would come and say, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus would say, well, keep all the commands, and you would be perfect. And he said, well, I've done them all. And Jesus said, well, okay, this one thing you lack. Give all your money to the poor. And the man went away sad. Oh, oh Jesus saying, oh, you're going away sad? You don't want to do that? Oh, oh, you really do love your stuff more than you love God. You see, you cannot. And the disciples would come to Jesus, pulling their hair out. they say, Jesus, who, who then can be saved? Who then can come into the kingdom? And Jesus, uh, if the rich and if the religious, if they can't come in, then who can? And I just, in my mind, I just see Jesus kind of reclining with a little, a little grin. And he says, that's exactly. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We are still eating from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil if we think we can be holy and righteous apart from God. That's why Jesus says, eat of me. The great mystery of the new covenant is that the Christ has come to unite himself to you. This was not possible in the old covenant. The sin of man and the holiness of God were at odds with each other. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And God demonstrated this love. He showed this love. He proved this love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has no desire for you to demonstrate your own ability and your, to, of, of your own good without him. It doesn't work. The law proves it. Jesus' condemnation of the religious crowd proved it. I think Peter walking on the water proves it. Peter says, hey, I can do that. Uh, let me come to you. Let me show you how righteous I am. He takes a step or two, but then he sinks because he doesn't have what it takes. In other words, God doesn't want you to get out of your boat to impress him. You can't impress him. God wants to get in your boat, to achieve in you what you could never achieve on your own. Union with him. In the new covenant, the very same God who was far from us is now united to us. Oh, I pray that we could see this. I pray that we could see that God's great power is manifest in us, not by us seeking to display and demonstrate our own righteousness. What righteousness do we have? But in seeing the reality that of the new creation, of the righteousness in us, that we have been united to God in Christ. Just think with me, saints. What would our church become right here in Crozet, Virginia? What would this church become? What could God do through us if we truly saw what the new covenant is really all about? We really saw that sin no longer is being imputed into saints. We could really see that the very righteousness of Christ has been deposited into our new creation when we became united to Christ at our conversion. In the new covenant, the very same God who was far from us is now united to us. Our band's going to come up and we're going to sing one more song before we're dismissed. And this is an opportunity for us to, to worship, to respond. And this song we're going to sing, it's, it's perfect. Because it talks about how Jesus has overcome. He has done what only He could do that we could never do. And because He overcame, we now are overcomers in Christ. I'm going to pray over us in a second. We're going to leave some space here for you to just rejoice between you and God, thanking Him from the reality of this new covenant, thanking Him for ridding you of your old man and replacing it with a new creation that's united to Him. 
We're going to leave some space for you to just pray between you and God, just thanking Him for not counting your sins against you any longer. Thanking Him for bringing His righteousness, His holiness, His power, His grace, His mercy, His love into your boat. We're going to give you a couple minutes just to reflect on the sheer awesomeness that the very same God who was far away, untouchable, now united to you in Christ. Then we're going to join the band in singing. But maybe you're here this morning and, and Jesus is yet to enter into your story. He's yet to enter into your life. I beg you this morning to run to Him. Embrace His forgiveness. Exchange your death for His life. He paid it all so that you could be free. Richard and I, we're going to do something different. We're going to actually be in the back. We don't want to stand up here. This is a time between you and God. We don't even want us up here in the way. We're going to be in the back. If you want to come talk to us, if you are, are interested in this whole thing of a new creation, what God desires to do in you through faith and believing in Jesus, then come and talk to us in the back. Or maybe talking in this environment isn't your cup of tea. Maybe you'd like to just meet up at Mud House or, or just chat via Facebook or something like that. And we'd love to do that too. But let's talk. So I'm going to pray. We're going to have a time of just you praying, thanking God and rejoicing. Are you encouraged to see what the new covenant is about, church? Are you encouraged? This is awesome. Father, I thank you for how good you are. I thank you, Father, that you do not any longer count our sins against us. They were all put on Jesus so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. God, I thank you that in the Old Testament, you, you walked past. We could not behold in the Old Testament because our sin was still imputed to us. But now in the New Covenant, it's changed. You have removed from us the heart of stone. and You have given us a new heart that's created righteous by you, as united to you. God, I pray that we see this, that Jesus entered the boat. He did for them what they could never do on their own. And he today will do for us, those who still yet believe, have yet to believe in Jesus. He will do for them what we could never do on our own. Father, as we just enter this time of just reflection and praying and thanking you, God, I pray that your truth would penetrate deep into our hearts, into our minds, that our minds become renewed to the truth of who you are, what you've done, and that your desire is to live your life through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.